Hello, today we are with Michael Fritzel. We're going to be going down the road of economics and China and geopolitics. And I'm going to first thank Michael for spending time with us and ask him just to tell a little bit of, can you tell the viewers a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a Swedish um, uh, national. Uh, I grew up in Switzerland and, and then Sweden. Uh, and then uh, over the past 15 years or so, I've spent time in Asia, mostly working as a buy-side research analyst for uh, two funds, or rather three funds, as well as a family office. Uh, I was in Shanghai for about four years, uh, basically identifying companies that we would invest in representing two funds and then three funds there, uh, including an Asia fund, but also funds investing in Hong Kong and, and across Asia. And uh, in the past 10 years, I've been living in Singapore, uh, working uh, also still in finance. And in the past two years, I've been focusing on writing online, basically on, on the Substack platform, where I write a newsletter called Asian Century Stocks. So I cover individual equities, but I also discuss broad themes, uh, including uh politics you know sometimes as well yeah there was a time in my life that i got so obsessed with china i started to learn mandarin and pinyin but i found the characters so difficult versus the romanized alphabet that i ended giving up and learning spanish instead so what got you fascinated with china well uh, i'll be honest in the in the mid 2000s I, uh, my first job out of university in, in Stockholm uh, was uh, in London. So I, I spent two summers doing internships in, in the finance industry in London. And then after that, I worked for a bank for a number of years in corporate finance. And in 2008, I found myself in a position where I was didn't quite know what to do because the, the revenues for the bank I was working for dried up. And there was so much spare time. And it was at that point... I suppose I was influenced a little bit by the Financial Times and the broad coverage that China received in those days. But I signed up for a Chinese course and I absolutely loved it so much that uh, in 2009, um, partly supported through uh, friends and, and my girlfriend at the time, I decided to make the move and I moved to Beijing where I studied at Peking University. Uh, so I stopped working for a year, studied Chinese and eventually was lucky enough to find a job in Shanghai uh, where I would be working then as on, on the buy side as a research analyst. What challenges did you face transitioning into Asia? I think just like you said, the there's a big hurdle in overcoming the, the characters in the Chinese language. And I remember so vividly those, those first few days in, in Beijing. I, I was alone at the time and just walking on the streets, perhaps, you know, getting lost at some point trying to communicate with people was impossible. Uh, and of course, there was no English anywhere, uh, at least not at that time. Uh, so I think communication was part of the challenge for me at that time. Uh, and over time, I learned to, to speak and, and read. Uh, and then I, I suppose more you know, in my work as, as a research analyst supporting funds, I think, uh, over the next 10 years or so, it became more the culture, uh, trying to understand how these people, you know, people in China thinks. They, they do think quite differently from, you know, from, from British people or, or Swedish. And um, yeah. What, what were the biggest surprises when it came to culture shock? I think, especially in the business sector, you have certain companies which are blatantly defrauding investors, let's say. I'm, I'm not saying that every company is like that, but there are some companies that, that do not adhere to, to the rules. Perhaps, you know, they might be manipulating earnings uh, or engaging in related party transactions, for example. And I've met people, you know, who's, who lied to my face and very convincingly so. And I've been told, and I do think it's true that uh, there isn't much as much of a stigma in the business community in China. It is a cutthroat world. And to get where you want to be, sometimes people, they do not care about the rules. They do not care about um, 
let's say, pumping a stock and, and issuing shares at a high level. It happens all too frequently. And uh, yeah, I think you need to be, if you're coming from a very safe environment like Sweden, you're not used to that kind of cutthroat competition and, and people playing each other. But it is the wild east. It was the wild east, at least at that time. So I remember, because I was in the financial markets in America, and I remember the Enron scandal. So I'm aware that there is corruption everywhere. Are you saying that the corruption in China <coughs> is a, mul a multiple of corruption in the Western countries? I, I think it, it, it might be. We, it's sometimes hard to get to the actual truth. Uh, of, of you know, you often see one narrative that you're presented as an outside investor when you meet the management team or investor relations person. Uh, but then it, when you dig deeper, you get to a deeper, deeper reality. There's always, I, I think there's always another uh, depth to, to the narrative that they're presenting. So um, I, I sometimes I, I'm just not sure what the reality might be, you know, in, in, the, in the listed companies, in the listed universe that I'm looking at. Uh, I perhaps half of the companies have some kind of issue, let's say a corporate structure that's that's just really complex with sister companies that are not listed. Uh, so maybe not quite half, but maybe a third of the companies have some type of issue. And that's probably a little bit higher than what I've seen in Europe. Although also in the US, there are a lot of companies that issue a lot of stock compensation to their employees and you know have differential voting rights, for example, in the tech industry. That's very common. Uh, and extreme salaries in the United States as well. Uh, so I think there's there's frauds and uh, poor corporate governance anywhere, frankly. You just got to be careful. I, I will say, though, that there is the this perception of China that's based on the fact that a lot of the companies that are frauds have been listed in, in the United States. So that's what people have been exposed to. Well, that was my yeah. next question, because I was going to say that if they're getting a listing on the New York Stock Exchange on NASDAQ, for example, do they then have to clean house? But you're saying that they're taking the corrupt balance sheets even when they're getting US listings. Yes, I mean, uh, short sellers have often uncovered uh, situations where, where, the, where the local accounts do not match the, those reported to the SEC. Very common. And in, in some cases, it's easy to, to spot that, for example, by counting the number of lorries going in and out of a factory, for example. That used to be uh, a way to, to spot frauds in the old days, you know, pre-2011 or, or so before internet companies started dominating the, the U.S. market. But, um, you know, even Chinese, they are careful of investing in U.S. Chinese, US listed Chinese stocks because they know that a lot of them are concept stocks, Gainiengu. They, they are, uh, to some extent, stories sold to investors. And, uh, you know, there is no way of getting around that. That, let's say, if you were to uh, present the reality that's not the, the truth to US investors, let's say that you, you don't, do not consolidate subsidiaries that should be consolidated. There, there are no repercussions in China so why wouldn't you try to manipulate earnings a little bit to raise more capital? Yeah, if there's no consequences. So I was approached, I think it was last year, by an agent representing. They said that they could get my YouTube videos put on Billy Billy, which was the Chinese version of YouTube. And I've been watching, and I have actually got in and out, traded in and out of Billy Billy shares a couple of times i've watched them really collapse down to below ten dollars then run up to almost 30 and mm. now it's back around 14 i think has that one come on your radar i've spoken to them in the past i have never spent a lot of time on the company but i was very impressed with what they've achieved you know the the way that they've able to been able to create a community uh, and, and a feeling of scarcity, you know, people want to become members. Uh, they say they used to be the case. Now they're pivoted a little bit, but it's without having met the CEO, 
I feel like he he must be one of the most talented individuals I've ever come across. So you don't think they're cooking the books? I'm not sure about that. I think a lot of the companies that are listed these days in Hong Kong or in in the United States, they are almost always successful real businesses. It's just a question of might costs be understated or might revenues be uh, overstated. And uh, in some cases, I've seen very compelling reports, for example, you know, with with real strong brand names, strong companies, uh, clearly, clearly underrepresenting cost, for example, even though, you know, I know that the company is doing well, but the margins are just exaggerated, basically. Because you're employed to do this research, does that preclude you from personally gaining and investing in what you find out? Yes. Uh, working for funds, there are very strict rules on, on what you can and cannot do in terms of investing. And at that time, I was not able to invest personally. Um, and the reason for that, I suppose there are a few. I mean, you, you want to be aligned with your investors. So, so that makes perfect sense. Uh, that said, now I'm writing on Substack full-time and I am investing myself and I also disclose what I invest in. So uh, certainly now these days, you know, you, you can see exactly what I invest in. Could you tell us what you've got invested in? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I um, I have about 25% uh, of my Asian portfolio, which is the largest one of my of my largest part of my personal wealth and um, about 25% in Hong Kong equities. Uh, I have a large position in Hong Kong fast food restaurants and those were bet on, um, on COVID-19 restrictions being eased in October, 2022. And we're now seeing a recovery in their businesses as people, as, as the food traffic returns and dining in uh, basically normalizes more or less. Um, so th that's some exposure that I have. I own uh, shares in Sinoc, which is a, a Chinese oil and gas producer. It's a state-owned ent enterprise, very well run, uh, growing production about 6% every year, including a very valuable um, uh, stake in uh, Guyanan oil field, which is growing rapidly and is, is basically the greatest find anywhere globally in, in the past five years or so. Uh, so, and that stock is extremely inexpensive at about P ratio of four and a yield wow. last year was about 13%, but this year about 10%. Wow. So that's, uh, that's basically, I have a few more other stocks, small, uh, small businesses. Uh, most of them are, uh, to some extent related to either the border reopening or a consumer recovery, which I think is going to take place continue to take place so if that's on a p ratio of four what is the whole market p ratio the it's it's hard to say where the market really is because if you look at the hang seng index for example a lot of the biggest holdings are extremely expensive actually hong kong exchange meituan uh aia group these are companies they represent the majority well Altogether, you know, if you look at the uh, top 10, 15, they are all quite expensive. And you might perceive that that the whole market is, is expensive then. But uh, in terms of small caps, I'm seeing so many stocks that uh, trade single digits. Like most Chinese state-owned enterprises trade at maybe six, seven times. Uh, dividend yields of 10% is common these days in Hong Kong. Uh, so it feels like the market is a P ratio of, of eight or nine, the kind of stocks that I look at. And I'm certainly, if there's any market globally where I'm seeing opportunity right now, you know, despite everything that's happened, of course, there are risks, but it would be Hong Kong. That is one of the markets that's been most beaten down. So... What's the name of the fast food companies you invested in in Hong Kong then? Um, I own a company called Café de Coral, another one called Fairwood. So they are fairly strong brands and um, the restaurant industry is quite competitive. 
but at least they, they do have brand names and people do like going to these places uh, for uh, typically for, for lunch after going to, you know, during, during office days, uh, during work days. Um, so some exposure to tourism, but that should also recover now that the, bo- that the border is open. So are you factoring in an optimistic appreciation of oil price then um, to profit from your investment in the Chinese oil company? Do you think oil is going to appreciate from here? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer. I don't know that. And um, I think even if you speak to oil experts, they they would find it difficult to project spot prices, let's say. I'm just, I'm just pulling it up now on my phone. We've had quite a good run, haven't we, in the last couple of months, actually? Bounced from yeah. 60 up to almost 90. I found, I mean, CNOC trades so cheaply that I found that it's it's been worth taking that risk. And I haven't been too, too worried about uh, the crude oil price exposure because after China's uh, reopening, let's, let's say, uh, in in November last year uh, or December, uh, flight traffic has started to resume, and it, it, outbound traffic hasn't resumed fully, but there is certainly a lot of pent up demand, and uh, that represents a you know a large push push for the, for um, for jet fuel and, and crude oil demand. So incrementally, I felt that the market, if anything, should be tighter, and and another factor is also that. United States, they've been drawing down on their special petroleum reserve over the past, uh, you know, one and a half years. And that's ending. That's ended now. So they've been releasing all this oil to the market. And finally, that headwind for the price has gone away. Perhaps that's why the the spot price has gone up a little bit. But in in any case, I I felt that these are positive uh, events, basically, for the oil price. And also worth mentioning that th- there are pressures on commodity prices, I think, because of China's, let's say, imploding construction activity. But that doesn't affect oil demand too much, just a little bit in terms of truck trucks uh, using diesel. And you said the dividend is about 10% on the Chinese oil company. Is that high by Chinese standards? It's become quite common in in the past year or so. Um, so many of these SOEs now offer about ten percent dividend yield. Uh, Sinopec Engineering. Uh, I mean, I, I can think of a few China Gas, perhaps. But I mean, there, there are quite a few SOEs. If not, if maybe not ten percent, but seven, eight percent is is very common. The listed porch, the the telcos. That is certainly a level that's um, quite common. And historically, I think dividend yields have been closer to to three, four, five percent. So, so how linked are investments in Hong Kong and China to the U.S. stock market? If the U.S. stock market crashes, does it drag the Asian markets down with it? I think that there is a group of stocks that active investors like like I used to be or people working for funds or hobby investors who are actively trading. They're typically interested in a particular groups of stocks. And those stocks have been primarily in tech in the past five years, uh, including Chinese tech, by the way. So, I, you know, if if a stock is really popular, Perhaps uh, Neo is still popular, or Li Auto, or any of these EV stocks. I think a lot of there's a lot of overlap between the investor bases owning those stocks as well as stocks in the United States. So if you get a drawdown, uh, then you know in the S&P 500, these stocks will typically also get hurt. But in terms of the stocks that I own, I mean, I I don't notice if if the if the uh, if the broad stock market is in the U.S. is up or down, because it just doesn't affect my shares. So, Neo is that a competitor to Tesla? That's right. Yeah. 
and what do you think the prospects for that company are like? Um, hard to say, really hard to say. When it comes to these growth companies, I think the way you want to analyze them, even though it's very qualitative analysis, you want to look at how engaged consumers are, how much they appreciate the product. And that, that is ultimately what matters. And I have never, I've, I've been in an electric vehicle, but I've never uh, driven a Neo. So I, I can't exactly tell, you know, how consumers think when they, when they purchase that product. But I, I will say this though, that I do think the Chinese EV market, it's grown immensely. I, I think it probably represents half of the global EV market. Uh, I do think initially from 2014 onwards, it was driven by subsidies, central government, local government subsidies. And they, they could be, they were huge, 20,000 USD, maybe, you know, 30,000. Uh, the, the average subsidy levels were, were absolutely massive. Now those were phased out and many people, including me, thought that EV sales would drop, but they haven't. They've actually continued to go up. And then there are two camps there. Some people believe that it's, it's because uh, the EV market has reached a, a, um, a, you know, escape velocity where products are, are, you know, where manufacturing is so efficient and battery prices have come down so much that, that they're now competitive with petrol vehicles. Uh, that is one interpretation. Another potential factor is that from 2019, uh, the government has basically pushed city governments to restrict restrict license plates for petrol vehicles, whereas EVs, they get license plates very easily. So in places like Beijing, where there's a lottery, you can't even get, I mean, at least in the past, you couldn't even get a normal vehicle. Uh, buying an EV was a way to, to easy get an, a license plate. And in Shanghai, where they have you have to pay for, for a plate, uh, you got EV plates for free. So yeah. that's been driving the market. And my big question is, what is the government going to do? Will they actually step away from the market at some point? Because if they do, I'm not sure where, they, where the sales will, will normalize. So, and, and that's, that's true for the global EV market as well. Like where, how much, how, how much do governments, how, how much do they want to support the market? And that's to me is, is unknowable. It's hard to say. So we've seen the rise of AI stocks and some of the big microchip companies that are associated with that industry. Has the same thing happened in, with Chinese equities? I, I've seen some uh, enthusiasm, especially within hard tech. Um, this year, though, I feel like a lot of the Chinese investors, especially Asian investors, they listen to the government. They, they listen to the uh, to the Communist Party. You know the guidance that they're giving in terms of where where subsidies are going and what kind of companies they want to support. And I think, rightly so, the the government wants to wants to support hard tech companies like semiconductor equipment manufacturers. And, and some of these stocks have really rallied uh, immensely. And uh, they're also quite successful, as we've seen with uh, Huawei's new chip, for example. But so, so I think that's where the enthusiasm is, together with EV stocks, clean tech, basically. So how is wealth distributed in China? What, what is, is there like a class system? How does it work over there? It's, it's been, uh, China has experienced an, an immense boom over the past, uh, you know, 40 years, an incredible boom. And um, in 1988, roughly, people were able to start private enterprises of their own, leading to a wave of entrepreneurship and uh, a, a lot of wealth for, for, for people who have their own businesses. Uh, of course, there are also people working working as professionals and have accumulated money that way. Uh, 
And then I also want to mention the property market, which up until very recently has been incredibly strong. And I had people telling me year after year that the property market will will always stay strong. Uh, and you know, up until very recently, it has. In 1998, they um, they liberalized the market. There used to be the case that the government provided housing uh, if you were an employee of a particular downway or like a like a work unit, you would be given a house, and you know, and that work unit would also approve if you were to marry and such. It was all very regulated, but from 1998, uh, basically, housing has been privatized, and people ended up with, I mean, they were able to buy housing very cheaply. They would subsidize the purchase of these houses for almost nothing, and. Over time, prices have gone up a lot, in incredibly fast, from 1998 to, you know, to, to the to to uh, until today, and uh, there was no leverage at all. There was no debt, almost no debt in the system. So, these rising prices led to a lot of wealth for people, and houses have just taken up more debt over time, crystallizing a lot of value for for people. So, I think a lot of people got wealthy through the property markets. And um, that could explain why we're seeing an enormous Gini, Gini coefficient. There's immense wealth uh, due to this, you know, unrestrained, unrestrained capitalism. Uh, and um, and yeah, and now we're seeing extreme uh, differences in, in, in wealth and, and incomes. So what's the population of China? Um, somewhere between 1.3 and 1.4 billion. So if you broke that down into how many people are in poverty, how many are in the middle class, um, upper class, to the elite echelon, how, how is that distributed over that population? I don't know the exact numbers, but our guess is probably four or five, six hundred million people who are working uh, in either in, in factories or farms um fairly uh or, or in the service industry the the vast majority are working in such jobs and, and they're perhaps making uh, you know four or five six thousand rmb per month i don't know the exact number but it would be somewhere around there uh, basically not earning all that much uh, and and perhaps you can you can accumulate some money that you can bu then buy a, a property in your hometown but not in the top tier cities the vast majority are, are in that group and uh, it's it, it you know the i don't feel that there's a huge middle class it's it's probably not more than you know 100 200 300 million people does china still have a policy of limiting how many children you can have I think these days it's very easy. I mean, you can you can certainly have more kids than during when than when the one child policy was in place. Uh, I don't think there are much restrictions anymore, so that avenue is open. Um, the birth rate is still going down, but I think that's more for economic reasons, a difficulty of purchasing a home, for example. Yeah. So, so in America, you hear rumblings about the red menace and communism you know this is echoed throughout the decades do you think that the america just needs a boogeyman to justify spending on military or do you think that china is a credible threat to america i think um, it seems far-fetched that that uh, China would would somehow significantly affect the the U American way of life, as far as I'm concerned. So it depends on how much does America get involved in uh, in a potential conflict over Taiwan, or Okinawa, or maybe somewhere in the Philippines. So if I know that some politicians, including Bongbong Marcos, or uh, in in Taiwan, the DPP, I do know that they are they're wanting to buy more weapons from the United States. 
they want them to have a presence in Taiwan. Uh, so certainly, you know, that that could cause a conflict uh, at some point. Uh, so that's where I see the risks occurring. And some kind of blockade over Taiwan. Let's say that, you know, the, 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 the communists, they've been in, in a war, basically, in a civil war with, with nationalists. Or now the Taiwan government. They've been in a civil war for... Uh, for I don't know how long, almost 100 years at this point. Uh, so, so, and that hasn't ended. I think the, the Communist Party wants to uh, to basically eradicate any competition uh, on the mainland or elsewhere. And if the United States does get involved, I mean, imagine the, the type of, of uh, horrors that could occur, given you know China's manufacturing prowess and uh, and and. I think they have very, they have plans on 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 dominating East Asia, first and and second island chain. If you look at the spending on the military by country, America always dominates the charts. But if you look at other measures such as the amount of individuals in the army, then I imagine that China comes out on top. How would you compare? Both forces. In in terms of the strength of the navy, I do think that the the, the number of vessels that the that the Chinese control uh, has now started to exceed that of the United States. But I do the United States has flight carriers, uh, quite many, if I'm not mistaken, almost a dozen, uh, and and I think the technology is also far ahead. But I think. The, the military spending is going up six, seven percent each year, so it doesn't take too many years for uh, at least the volume of of, uh, of of ships, especially and especially in East Asia, for for China to really be a you know a, a force to reckon with. And I, I say that not as a, as a military expert, but that's that this is just common sense because we're seeing uh, their defending spending go up, and I think also think there are probably a lot more. Uh, they are thinking more carefully on how they spend their money, whereas a lot of these Americans' weapons are incredibly expensive. And uh, I, I am not personally, if if the dollar, I'm not sure if the dollar amount really says everything. Yeah, a lot of it's going in the pockets of the politicians and the contractors, no doubt. So with China being this economic engine whereby many countries have outsourced their production to it. If there was a world war, hypothetically speaking, wouldn't that be a security concern that many of these countries now can't even produce their own products to keep them, them going? But China can just, you know, it's, it's got this giant economic engine. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, the, the Communist Party has bargaining power because even companies like Raytheon are, are producing their weapons in China, or a lot of the components for, for the weapons in China, which tells you how strong of a manufacturing sector they have. So I think there will be a, a, a wake-up call if, if a war did occur. Uh, most likely, it will be a, China will, will try to use its power, project its power overseas, uh, slowly, slowly, without necessarily, you know, provoking anybody too much. Wasn't there a bit of a fright when the coronavirus started because of trade restrictions and that America needed a lot of PPE, etc., and it had to come from China? Yeah. And that's true for, for so many industries. Pharmaceuticals is one, you know, weapons manufacturing even. Uh, so I can't think of any other historical precedent to, to the current situation but all I can say is that Ch China and the Communist Party have Im immense bargaining power I think say things escalated with America and Russia where would China lie in that would they, is it a natural to go with the fellow communist country or is that not the case 
Yeah, I, th I think there is a there's a cooperation, unlimited friendship, as as was said uh, during a meeting. There was a, a statement after a meeting between Xi and, and Putin. So they are certainly allies, and uh, if if you see uh, Chinese state media, I think they're they're using the same narratives as, as Russian state media. So there's a st strong partnership there, and also uh, that partnership is natural because. Uh, Russia has lots of resources. China has manufacturing capabilities, so they can certainly trade and, and add value to each other uh, th through trade. And uh, so it, it does seem like there is a, a block forming. And in uh, in the during the Cold War, we had an iron curtain and a or a bamboo curtain in Asia. Uh, it's unclear whether borders will close again. I, I think that there's been some signs of that happening, both in China and, of course, Russia. But uh, it, it's hard to say exactly which countries will be part of such a curtain, part of a, you know, if, if the decoupling continues. But Iran, Russia, North Korea and China seem to be uh, uh, very close in terms of their, their yeah, geopolitical strategy. So how does BRICS fit into all this? I think the BRICS is one of of many ways that China is trying to uh, find uh, greater cooperation, greater trade flows, and greater uh, just deepening relationships with with different countries. I mean, there's been BRICS is one of those organizations, uh, but they've also initiated a number of other strategies, including the Belt and Road Initiative. They have something called the Global Security Initiative now, and it it these are just ways, I believe, to to uh, deepen those relationships and to form what Xi Jinping calls uh, the community of of a shared benefit for for the future of mankind, something like that. Uh, he he envisions a not necessarily uh, a union of communist countries, but a union of like-minded countries that trade with each other and. Uh, do not necessarily cost any trouble, at least not to China. <laughs> so if you look at the League of Economic Growth for countries worldwide, is China and the Asian economies, are they still in, you know, near the top of the charts? Well, I think the, it's become increasingly difficult to know what growth might be. Uh, Looking at alternative data methods, uh, it's, it does seem like uh, growth is, has been slower than the reported GDP numbers. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I, I just cannot really answer that. But uh, I do think growth right now, at least, should be fairly weak because construction activity has, has gone down quite a bit. Uh, and... China is right now in, in a adjustment phase whereby construction activity is coming down, but uh, presumably those workers will be engaged in other, perhaps more productive uh, jobs. So I, I think right now China is, is in a tough spot in terms of their economic growth. That's all What's GDP right now? Total GDP? Yeah. Oh, I don't know the exact number. Okay. Yeah. I can, uh, I can 18 Google. trillion. 18 yeah. trillion. It's, it's, it's certainly been an immense success story. And um, to me and, and others who are looking from, in from the outside, uh, I think you know, media is so biased that it's hard to get a sense exactly of what's going on. Uh, I find we're, you know, we're getting into two camps almost where... I have many pe people who go to China frequently and are very impressed with uh, the way that they've tackled pollution, the way that they're building uh, subway systems or uh, and so on. And there are also certain companies that are doing really well, including these EV manufacturers, for example. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's this this construction downturn is 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 real and. Uh, 
Yeah. I'm so, looking at the graph now. We've got USA GDP at 23.32 trillion in 2021. Like you said, China, uh, 18 trillion US dollars, Japan, 5 trillion. And I remember when Japan had that massive economic boom in the 80s and 90s and they were buying up all the real estate in America and stuff. And they almost caught up with America's GDP. And it looks like China is about to catch up with America's GDP now. Do you think it's going to overtake it this time and, and do what Japan did not? I think it's extremely hard. Back in 1960s, uh, the economics professor Paul Samuelson, he predicted that Soviet Union would overtake the United States in the next, uh, I don't recall exactly the exact prediction, but it was in the next decade or two. Uh, so these predictions are really hard. And uh, I, it, it, I can't really tell what's going to happen from the current reforms that are taking place. Because uh, ever since 2012, or perhaps a little bit earlier than that even, uh, the, the party has basically reasserted power, reasserted control over certain sectors of the economy that it did not previously control, including uh, communist party committees in, in most private companies. And we've seen crackdowns in tech, in, in private uh, property development, and as well as the tuition industry. But we don't quite know exactly what effect these party committees will, will have on private enterprises in other sectors. You could see a case, if you're extremely bearish, that state-owned enterprises will basically continue to slowly uh, take market share or take control of of private enterprises, but you know it's it's really hard to say. I, I I don't know what goes through the mind of Xi Jinping, and and so far, I mean, there's just such immense talent in China and an immense. Uh, th there are still a very thriving private sector, and as long as that continues to be the case, as long as there's innovation taking place, uh, God knows, you know, where where they will peak out. The GDP per capita is certainly not very high. So in the communist countries then, you mentioned Russia, what held them back was the government planning how many items of X to produce and Y to produce, etc. versus the free market economy. China's introduced free markets. Are you saying there's a risk that the degree of free marketing could be restricted by the bureaucrats in China and that would inhibit them overtaking Americans' GDP? Potentially, yeah. Potentially, um, in in 2012, most bank loans went to the private sector, about 80% or so. <clears throat> but today, in 2016, I think it was about 30%. It's gone down significantly. So most bank loans now, now go to the state-owned enterprises. And they stopped disclosing that data. So we don't know exactly how much lending now goes to the to, to each pr private versus public sector. Uh, over time, that could have an effect. You know, if resources are allocated more to the state-owned enterprises, that would lead greater employ to greater employment, presumably to them, and less to the private sector, perhaps. Uh, but but even to this day, I think most individuals are employed in the private sector, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say that all state-owned enterprises are ineffective because you know there are exceptions, of course. Uh, overall, though. The greatest innovation is typically done by private enterprises, I believe. So, I'm looking at the variation. I'm sorry, I did not finished. Go ahead. Okay, I'm looking at the variation in interest rates in China from 1980 to 2020, and um, it's showing that they went negative. What was that 1994? And now. Um, what what explains the variation in, in Chinese interest rates over the decades? Is it completely different from the free market uh, system we've got here with the and the Federal Reserve banks and all that stuff? Bank of England. Yeah. Who who sets interest what? rate policy in China? That's what I'm getting at. The People's Bank of China. So what's interesting about China is right now most central banks are raising interest rates across almost every country in the world, with a few exceptions. Uh, but 
yeah, one of the sole exceptions is China. It's its economy is actually uh, quite you know working quite differently than the rest right now. Like in terms of the cycle, so interest rates in the United States have gone up to very high levels with mortgage rates of over seven percent, and it's hard to think that's not going to lead to some you know negative impact at some point. And I keep making this case that perhaps you do not want to own shares in a in a in such a you know tightening cycle. Perhaps it's better to own bonds, perhaps in in such markets. But but China is is frankly, they are able to stimulate the economy. They're able to lower rates to even lower levels because they they don't have any inflation problems. So, personally, I feel like the 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 this whole setup could allow for 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 stimulus to come, and for for Chinese stocks to eventually bottom out and, and to see another cycle. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, and I'm not sure why. There's some rumors that Xi Jinping does not want to give cash to households because they he thinks they will make them, uh, you know, it, it would not be productive use of, of capital. But um, they certainly can stimulate. There are no, they don't have much foreign currency debt anymore. They have foreign exchange reserves. Uh, their interest rates, the inflation problem is just not there. So they've been lowering interest rates and they can continue to do so, I think. Well, you've got me sold on China because of the inverse relationship between interest rates and the stock market. It seems that America is a risky proposition right now, but they usually don't they usually reduce interest rates uh, in the run up to an election to try and get, get more votes uh, so that we could see the end of that cycle or do you think the inflation risk is going to dominate i i are you talking about the american yeah you know well yeah. i don't quite understand how uh powell thinks because the inflation problem to me they seem to be disappearing quickly i i don't see this this immense inflation pressure that we saw a year ago two years ago one and a half years ago so as as the in terms of what I'm seeing in, in terms of inflation, I don't think there's any need to raise rates further. If anything, this should be lowered uh, fairly soon. But, you know, he has his own incentives and perhaps his own legacy to think of. So, uh, and and the, we're living in a, I mean, Americans have had huge stimulus prior to this. So perhaps there's still a lot of dollars floating around. Um, but I wanted to say one thing. I mean, you, you talked about bullishness on Chinese shares. And uh, I, I'm a little bit agnostic because the economy has a few pillars to it. Uh, I'm speaking a lot about the, the consumer recovery that we should be seeing thanks to consumer household balance sheets are quite strong after you know all these lockdowns. They haven't spent all that much and that consumption is not coming back. But uh, the, the, the government... After 2020, they restricted credit to private property developers. And since then, construction activity has just basically stopped among them. And, and, and that's causing a lot of pain, I think, to the construction economy, which is maybe about 30% of GDP. So I would be careful with anything to do with uh, trucks or excavators, uh, even toll roads or, or, or metals, you know, industrial commodities. To me, this seems like they, they should be vulnerable uh, in this current environment. Uh, and same with the export sector. You know, it's 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 been a little bit tough after COVID ended and, and people stopped spending money on, on goods. Uh, so that, that's more of a short-term issue. The construction downturn could continue depending on what the government wants to do. What is your projection for the Chinese currency versus pound or the dollar? I think the uh, the there should be a uh, a weakness in terms of employment due to the construction downturn that we're seeing. Uh, you know, if that continues, the I think the any reasonable autocrat or communist party should, I think, uh, try to do something about the unemployment, perhaps through some kind of stimulus. And um, the I think the the path of least resistance is always to to print money for any economy. Uh, 
and, and Xi Jinping, he seems to be reluctant to do so. But in most other countries, governments, they, they'd like to print money. With whatever problem emerges, they will print more money. Um, so the exchange rate, I, I do think the debasement is in the cards for all of us. You, and to protect yourself against that, you want to own shares or, or gold or something like that. But um, yeah, if there is a stimulus, I'm talking about short term now, if there is a stimulus, perhaps a, a, a way to deal with the unemployment issue, the currency would probably weaken in, in the face of that. So earlier on, you mentioned short sellers looking at companies cooking the books and profiting from that if you know it's that gap's closed are there any recent incidences of that you've uncovered through your research any possible arbitrage opportunities for short sellers there are plenty of companies where um i'm seeing things that don't quite make sense mm -hmm. but um would i short them I mean, with stocks at these low levels, I don't know what I would short, to be honest. Maybe something hot and sexy that, that people are have bid up too much. But um, I, I haven't been involved in short selling for, for quite some time now. And to, to me, this is not a market, you, you know, it does, it's not a market with a lot of downside. Like I see news coming out of, of China and, and just sentiment being weak now for for almost a year. And stocks, are, they're not exactly going lower. You know, the new, bad news still continues. To me, that's a, this is a bottoming market. I mean, I'm, this is not an investment recommendation, but historically, when you see share prices holding flat and negative news keep on coming, um, that's typically a sign of a market that's slowly starting to bottom. But uh, so, yeah, you know, if anything, I would look for, for, for long ideas in Hong Kong, personally. That's Sounds like I might have to get back into some Billy Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I, I don't know the stock. I haven't looked at the share price for some time. All I can say is that the, the business itself, you know, uh, if you if you want to buy shares and own them for the really long term, uh, perhaps not. Don't buy in a you know in a bubble or, or or when they're really hot. But other than that, I mean, st sticking to people who are brilliant, that seems to me like a good uh, good strategy. Yeah, it's trading at thirteen eighty five, thirteen dollars eighty five in the U.S. market right now. Symbol is B I L I for people watching this. And uh, it is down from uh, was it, uh, uh, multiple of that a couple of years ago. So it's got some real good potential there. They're calling it the YouTube of China. Michael, this has been absolutely fascinating to go back to my days of discussing economics and the stock market. Huge thank you for spending time with us. Can you just tell the viewers where they can find you and support you online, please? Sure, yeah. So I write uh, full-time on, on the Substack platform. And the Substack newsletter is called AsianCenturyStocks.com. And I do about 20, more than 20 uh, company reports each year, uh, focusing on, on typically value stocks in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, not just China, but across the region, uh, companies that I find interesting. And so I do PowerPoints and, and uh, video presentations on them as well. So, yeah. I'll definitely be keeping an eye on your advice and research. And huge thank you again. Thanks for watching this, viewers. Let us know in the comments what you think. And we will see you next time. Cheers.